welcome to this edition of The Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. As sales of electric vehicles have finally started their uptick, we're starting to see some unanswered questions about their maintenance, repair, and replacement. I'm joined by Chris Muir. He's a consultant and professor at Centennial College School of Transportation, the biggest facility of its kind in Canada. Welcome back to The Driving Podcast, Chris. A pleasure to be here as always. First, there's been some big changes at the school, and it's a great lead-in to today's topics, speaking about electric vehicles. Tell us a little bit about what's happening and what your new role is. So uh, recently, uh, we've, we've begun offering uh, electric vehicle training because we saw a real kind of uh, missing part in the industry as far as safety and all that kind of stuff goes. Uh, we offer that in the continuing education department, so it's available to uh, fleets and garages and individuals in order to uh, update their skills for new and emerging technology that's that's you know already on the road and uh, because of this kind of excitement uh, I moved over to the continuing education department uh, and now am a roving if you will um, electric vehicle instructor so you can actually go out into the community if you're requested by other facilities or like you said, fleets and bring this new tech. Cause it really is new tech. Like this is apples and oranges to what we've been used to with ice vehicles. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So we get to go out into the community. We also offer programs where the community can come to us if that suits them better, if they don't have the facility or the training space, or they don't want to shut down their facility for the day, that kind of thing. They can always come to the college, which you know, we've got more toys to play with at the college than we can necessarily rove with. But hey, if you want us to come to your facility, we'll bring our own hybrid vehicle or electric vehicle and show you all kinds of stuff about the battery, how to safely disconnect it, uh, working with them safely, all that kind of stuff that uh, techs are really nervous about right now. You you have a lot of support from manufacturers. I, I've been to um, the college actually before you even were working there. And I was amazed at the level of support from the industry. Manufacturers give you cars, basically. Have they been as forthcoming with the electric cars? Um, we've been pretty lucky with procurement. Uh, we've got some pretty big contributors. We've got hybridized buses from the TTC. We've got postage vans from Canada Post in order to train their people on them, as well as we've, we've gone out and we've procured our own vehicles. I don't know if we, I would say we've had donations of a lot of electrics. Uh, I do know that we've had a couple. We've got a Chevrolet Bolt that was donated to us. Uh, we're looking at procuring, you know, odd stuff too, like the Teslas and, and uh, stuff that's outside of the mainstream, if you will. Um, but yeah, we've, we've been lucky enough to have uh, quite a few opportunities to acquire new technology. The reason I bring that up is because I think um, we're starting to see gaps um in media reports, I wrote last week about the cost of fixing uh, Rivian R1T, which is the fancy new pickup that the upstart electric company Rivian is producing. And they showed what looked like a fender bender, a little mm -hmm. card kind of, you know, re-rendered it a bit. And it turned into a $42,000 fix on this car because the initial insurance adjuster had thought it was a $1,600 fix because he was considering it as a pickup you know, not an electric one. And when they got in there, they had to take the thing apart all the way to the front of the truck because of it's assembled differently than familiar pickup trucks, for lack of a better term. And a reader said to me, or a reader commented and said, this doesn't sound like a, a truck failure. It sounds like a repair failure, but we can only repair what we know and what we've been taught to repair. How much of a sea change is this going to be moving over? So, 
the Rivian is, is a, a unique thing as well as, as uh, some of the Teslas and the Lucid Airs and stuff like that. Not only are they electric vehicles, which is a brand new uh, propulsion system, but they're also brand new manufacturers, relatively speaking, and they are built, uh, particularly Rivian and Lucid, they're built outside of kind of normal car standards. So it may not be so much an electric vehicle collision issue in, in that one. It could be a more a bespoke startup company issue where we don't have a wide amount of aftermarket support for that particular one. Uh, there isn't the knowledge of the structure of the vehicle uh, when the appraisers go out to it. Um, that is that is one of the gaps that we're starting to see open up with these new upstarts entering kind of that, that automotive races. They bring all kinds of new and interesting technology, but they don't have the old school assembly techniques. Uh, they don't have the access to parts that uh, some of the legacy manufacturers have. So I don't know if that is so much an electric problem as it is a upstart tech problem. Do we have concerns with the electric propulsion units in them in an accident? Yeah, but I'm not sure it's as, as rampant as one might be led to believe. Uh, see, from a consumer standpoint, if I'm considering these, if I'm reading these headlines, it's going to make me a little nervous if I'm thinking no one is going to know how to fix this thing and I might be out of a car for how long. Don't manufacturers, shouldn't they be backing this up better? Like, is that unfair to say, hey, Rivian, $42,000 for this fix? I, I'm not seeing, I don't know, from a consumer standpoint purely, which is frankly the thing I care about the most, are they doing enough? Are, are these upstarts or new um, new manufacturers, are they doing enough to support no. their own product? No, not at all. So I think one of the problems with the new upstarts is they all come from a technology background. So they treat the car like an iPhone. You know, an iPhone brand new is $1,500, $2,000. And that's, that's pretty intimidating already. But now you've got a car that's worth, you know, $100,000 to $200,000. Um, parts aren't available to it. They're playing these these uh, technology games where they're, they're, the information is being kept really close to the chest, uh, which doesn't let the aftermarket adapt as quickly as they do for legacy manufacturers. It's uh, it's not fair to the consumer. Uh, you know, no holds barred. It's not fair to the consumer. Cars are cars. They're not phones. They're not computers. They're not refrigerators. They are a massive investment and in our ability to get uh, parts either from the original manufacturer or the aftermarket um, shouldn't be hindered regardless of the vehicle. Some of these, I think we should start viewing them more as, uh, you know, exotics, Lamborghinis, uh, Paganis, because we're in that same realm of parts availability and expense. So this means more education before consumers are going forward and doing this. I've ha I have a lot of talks, as you know, with Giorgini and yep. I used to with DeRozzi at a All the people who are saying the aftermarket is not caught up, like it's not there. It hasn't had a chance to get there yet. And all the fancy shiny stuff is blasting ahead. But the aftermarket is going, woo, you know, here in the shadows kind of thing and hasn't really caught up. And yeah. Let me ask you. Okay. If you break down the way I look at EVs, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I think there's two main factors in an electric vehicle, the battery and the mm -hmm. rest of it. Yep. <laughs> the size yep. of these batteries is massive. It's the most expensive part of this car. I was speaking to the APA yesterday, and they said they had a Kia, and it was a $45,000 car new, and the battery replacement, it got stuck with a bar, like 
um, it wrecked. Mm. It came up on the road. The battery yeah. replacement was going to be $52,000, which means, of course, it was written off. And we're going to see more insurance staying away from lawsuits and not knowing how to fix stuff and running away from it. So if we've got the battery and everything else, um, if they're too scared to do the batteries, how are we going to get around this? We have to have cars we can fix. Don't you agree? Oh, well, absolutely. No, a car is a, a car is a long-term investment. And if you can't repair it, it, it makes the, it makes it very unappealing to insurance companies, which will make it unappealing to the consumers themselves. And when people start to see some age on these cars and can't get replacement parts, or they can't be serviced the way that they should be, um, it's going to drive consumers away from these cars. Uh, possibly, un, I'm going to say unfairly, but it's not unfair when you're looking at a $50,000 battery for a $40,000 car. That's, that's, that's exactly kind of the opposite direction that we want to take. I think what we're really seeing here is we're seeing a, a wasteland of, of aftermarket manufacturers rising to meet new technological challenges. We're seeing manufacturers uh, not being held to the right to repair standards that they once were. We're seeing service information held back. Uh, I mean, we get into some of these uh, non-legacy cars. We can't communicate with them with standard scan tools. Uh, it, it's it's a show for sure. Uh, it's not a good one. Um, can you we explain what right to repair means? It's a really, really big, big issue here and in the U.S. And it's been an ongoing struggle for decades. But now it is really critical and it's changed a lot. So can you just explain to listeners what right to repair means? Right to repair is the, the ability to purchase service information from the manufacturer. Uh, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. It doesn't mean everybody gets to have that service information. But if you pay a, a fee, you're allowed to have the service manual for the piece of equipment that you've either acquired or that you repair on the regular. So most of us in the automotive aftermarket, um, we're paying for shop manuals that service the majority of cars. The really nice thing about right to repair is it was a law for a very, very long time on all new vehicles, right? We had to have that service information available to us within a period of time in order to repair the car. And a big helper in that was environmental rules um, that said, hey, the car's got to have no engine light on, uh, emissions testing, all that kind of stuff. And we have to be able to repair these quickly and efficiently for the consumer. Now, where we've had this massive shift is we are making zero emission vehicles, vehicles that do not meet the criteria um, of the former right to repair automotive legislation. Because of that, we have manufacturers that will not share the engineering information that we require in order to repair these vehicles or make aftermarket parts. So that's, as you can well imagine, it's a big issue. So is, is that going to change? Are they being this protective um some of them they can't even fix their own vehicles there's backlogs on even tesla stuff trying to get parts and trying to get stuff done and generally we're used to having depending on the size of your town there might be two ford dealers two stellantis you know three nissan it's not like that with these no no it's not at all access them geographically and now you're saying a lot of them are withholding information from people is it are they doing it at a proprietary or are they doing it because they think you might wreck their car? Uh, they're doing it for proprietary reasons. There's no need to think that a car outside of warranty, they're concerned that, uh, you know, you're, you're going to 
wreck their car. If you wreck their car, that's great for them because of their your your customer has to become their consumer again if their car is unrepairable, right? Yeah. Um, so they're doing this for proprietary reasons, but it affects the end user user's pocketbook, you know, in, in ways that we're just starting to discover, uh, like a fifty thousand dollar battery pack, um, like some of these battery packs that the manufacturers are making where they should be serviceable, but they're sealed units and you can't replace segments of them. You have to replace the whole thing and uh, opening up, you know, my parts uh, look up for simple things for some of these electric vehicles, be it a strut, a brake rotor, uh, control arms, uh, that kind of stuff. And they're not available yet in the aftermarket when, you know, the car I'm looking at has been out since 2017. And I should tell listeners, Chris, you own two EVs, correct? I do indeed. I own two uh, Chevrolet Bolt, and uh, I had one uh, prior to these two, uh, which I ended up trading in because they couldn't get a contactor for the battery in time. I was in a rental for three months, and then we traded the vehicle in. General Motors stepped up to the plate, gave me a good incentive, all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I applaud them for that. But visiting the dealer afterwards for three or four months after the car was still in the back waiting for parts. Um, we've talked about battery recycling in the past, and there's companies I know, Lycycle in Toronto is doing global work to uh, recapture their, these batteries. They cost a fortune because of all the precious minerals that are in them, and that's making headlines everywhere. As we talk about Northern Ontario and other parts of the world being big suppliers in these extremely expensive um, metals. So it's really, really, really important that they're totally recycled. I think it should be a closed loop. And I think the reason we're buying electric vehicles, most people, is because they are, they're environmentally conscious. Are we, can, will we get to there? Because I, I, I'm reading and seeing insurance companies, for instance, writing off cars because they're too scared to get them touched and where are those batteries ending up? There's no federal regulations yet that I'm aware of. There wasn't a week ago. So how are people, we're used to throwing stuff away, but we're supposed to not be doing that anymore. Traditionally, I mean, automobiles are one of the most recycled or, or reused items on earth, right? Like we can go out to um, a scrapyard right now and start pulling parts off of other vehicles to repurpose and, and you know, give old vehicles new life. Uh, using previously enjoyed components. So that that portion of it should be, and I'm using my quotey fingers, should be uh, alive and well. We're seeing some very, very bespoke aftermarket companies starting to reclaim bits and pieces of these vehicles in order to repurpose them in uh, repowering uh, conventional vehicles and stuff like that. Great. Um, some of the battery packs we're seeing used for uh, energy storage in uh, green energy at homes. Again, wonderful idea but real end of life on these batteries i think is eventually going to come to the point where it becomes a closed loop where you go to recycle one of these vehicles the battery pack is removed sent to a reclamation facility and is either uh tested and the valid cells are recombined into a uh a lower priced replacement battery or they're um shredded and used in new production the nice thing about them is it's still there. All of the precious materials are still there. Yes, they've got to be pulled apart and recombined, but we can use that battery again. As far as cost goes, it's like any other emerging technology. The, the ideal is it should become easier 
and it should become much, much cheaper to reclaim these materials. We're, we're, in, a, we're in a very wild west of electric vehicle technology right now. Everybody's trying to race to become, you know, first cross the line. Uh, everybody's keeping their technology close to their chest. And uh, everybody's buying new minerals because they're cheaper than recycling. We're going to take a short break. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. We're on the Driving Podcast with my guest, Chris Muir. We'll be back just after this short break. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. This is the Driving Podcast. Thanks for waiting for us. Um, I'm joined today by Chris Muir. Chris, I have a question. I was speaking with the APA, and a reader took me to task over that Rivian R1T repair, the $42,000 one, because I quoted that the APA is chasing down some outstanding issues with the Nissan Leaf and the Ford Focus EV. And they said, they don't even make these anymore. It doesn't matter. Why are we doing that? I happen to think it's really important for agencies like the APA and NHTSA in the U.S. and Transport Canada to defend a consumer's right to not have their vehicle be unusable or intensely expensive to make it usable after just a few years. This is treating cars as fast fashion, and I think it's um, obscene, basically. So what's your take on that? Should we just move past them because, oh, we've got better tech now, too bad? No, not at all. So, so cars, I mean, have forever have been one of the most recycled things on the planet. We've been able to um, repurpose and repower uh, components from old cars. We can go to scrapyards and, and uh, make an old car usable for, you know, 10 to 20 years uh, even in our harsh climate, to to think that something that went out of production less than 10 years ago should be discarded uh, is absolutely obscene. What we've seen with uh, the Nissan Leaf is there's no battery support, and then the Ford Focus Electric wasn't a popular car. It didn't sell well, and it's been basically abandoned. Um, we're also seeing a real glut in, in uh, sorry, not a glut, a, a sparsity, in aftermarket support for these vehicles, um, there's a few companies, uh, and I know of one in the UK that will actually repower an old Leaf with a new Leaf's battery, but it's, again, obscenely expensive to ship your car from here to the UK in order to have that, that service done by a, a very boutique company. The manufacturer should support that vehicle for at least 10 years after production, and that means service information that means uh spare battery cells so we don't have to discard an entire battery there's no excuse for that these cells are bolted in place and if they're sonic welded in place bolt them in place so they're serviceable the the software support should be there if you're selling a piece of tech that's supposed to take take over uh where we left off on internal combustion you have to make it as user friendly as internal combustion the end user has to experience this and feel the real cost savings after 10 years, not be saddled with an unrepairable car um, and nowhere to turn. I'm, we've seen a lot of headlines about fires and my colleague David Booth was writing about uh, understanding how much water it takes to put out an EV battery fire. Because I, I don't know if listeners haven't seen how big these batteries are, but they are enormous and they're extremely heavy and i know every single car can catch fire i understand that it's not just about evs ice have the same the same issues at different points but 
the intensity of these fires because of how much power is encased in that battery is a little terrifying. Um, can you address, should we be worried about this? Is this a thing? It's not scaremongering because I, I know any vehicle can catch catch fire, but these things are so big and because of where they're positioned, could it be better? Are we going to see better tech moving along with this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a thermal runaway in one of these batteries is absolutely terrifying. We, we start to see the energy being dispersed very rapidly. Um, and I mean, it's a fire that will last for days if, if it's not put out and the battery isn't managed. That's what the volume of water is for, is not really to put out the fire, but to cool off the adjoining cells so they don't go on a thermal runaway. And, and it's a cascading event, right? One lights fire, overheats the next one, it catches fire, overheats the next one. And that's, that's where we're seeing that. Uh, and the intensity is absolutely terrifying. What I think we're really seeing though, is a, a sensationalization of them catching fire, how often they do it. If we look at the volume of vehicles that catch fire uh, in comparison to an equal sample of gasoline vehicles, uh, we would see the gasoline vehicles are more prone to fires. They're just generally not as violent as an electric vehicle. There is things being put into place. I mean, we saw two massive battery recalls with Chevrolet and um, Kia for their manufacturing process, and that was all LG Chem. Uh, batteries. So the same manufacturer had the same problem. Uh, they folded the anode on the battery over and there was some exposed wire on the inside. It caused a reaction and a fire. Now that's not a comfortable thing when the car burns in your driveway or your house catches fire. You get at this man massive uh, notice from the manufacturer saying that your car is going to burn. Leave it outside. Um, I had one of them in my driveway for quite some time and another one, uh, as I said, at the dealer. Um, but the, the the occurrence is a lot less. We have better and better software and cooling systems for these batteries as well. Like I said, with the first gen LEAF, we had nickel cadmium uh, batteries. We had low range. We had no climate control. Uh, now you see the AC compressor is an integral part of the battery system to keep these things cooled and operating at the right temperature. Uh, there's all kinds of smart controls in order to safely house this energy it's it's terrifying okay so the media should be doing a better job and we should not be scaring the crap out of people with um some of the headlines that we use i would say so you see a lot of these things you know uh tesla violently catches fire for no reason except it's got a steel rod through the battery or it's wrapped around a tree uh, yeah. there's the reason right we had we had an explosion or or a sudden release of energy that overheated things because safety systems were corrupted. Uh, there is, and don't get me wrong, there is definitely instances of these things just sitting here, the safety systems fail, and the thing catches fire. It's not, not fun. It happens. But I'd like to inversely take, and this is something that I deal with with technicians as well, is I'd like to inversely kind of think of the idea that we have for decades thought that it's a good idea to sit on a soft bladder full of a flammable liquid uh, with an engine that is absolutely full of oil, making as much heat as possible as we drive down the road, spewing all kinds of flammable liquids out of this thing and just, ah, it's safe, good enough, <laughs> right? So we've made an exchange of fire. One of them's a little bit more violent. One of them is a little bit more prone to smaller fires. <laughs> okay, let me ask you something. Um, if Going forward with electric vehicles, 
what do owners need to know about maintenance and what do technicians need to know? Like if I'm coming at this as a new purchaser, if I'm thinking about it, what's going to be different with how I handle the maintenance of my vehicle? What should I be prepared for? All right. So uh, a lot more brake jobs, <laughs> uh, a lot less oil changes. So there's no oil changes. There's really no gear change, uh, fluid changes on the things as far as uh, steering or anything like that. All of that is uh, handled by the electric system. So you see a month to month cost savings on oil changes and stuff like that, where you're going to give that money back is in the brakes. The brakes on these cars aren't used very often. Most of your braking is actually uh, synthesized. It's the uh, electric motor that slows the car down. And at the very end of travel, the service brake comes on. I get out of my car all the time. I look at my rotors and I can see the deep rust pits on them after driving the car into work for hour and a half to two hours um, because the brakes don't apply. And because they don't move, they seize up the rotors rot on the car, stuff like that. So you're going to see a lot more um, brake maintenance, a lot less you know, fluid changes, oil changes, stuff like that. Um, tires might be a little bit more expensive. They're specialized. And then, of course, as the technology goes up, we increase production. The cost of tires is going to come down. Um, but, oh, gosh, which, which direction am I headed here? Uh, <laughs> the general maintenance, you're still going to get into, you know, things like alignments, brake services, um, tire rotations, uh that kind of stuff never leaves. You're still driving a car. It just doesn't have the ice engine to take care of. Are we going to lose a lot of older techs? My favorite mechanics out here, other than you, because I don't live in your city, um, they're, they're my age. They're older. And I can't, I can't see them moving forward into a whole new EV market. And I like yeah. independent garages. I have a lot of faith in them. And once something's out of warranty, dealers are fine for what for what I need a dealer for, but I prefer my independence to support them locally. Are we going to see a big evaporation? Oh, absolutely we are, yeah. Um, it's probably one of the biggest challenges that I have talking to, you know, just my colleagues, uh, people that I've hung out with for years. Um, the garage that I left before I went to the college, uh, I talk to him all the time and he is dead set against it. He is not interested in learning that. He's not interested in the tooling. Um, he has no interest in adapting this new technology. And he's my age, which is, you know, mid forties. Um, so he's not old. He's got another 20 years. He could be in this trade and he is not interested at all. Uh, it is this going to be worse than when we introduced fuel injection in the late eighties and early nineties, the amount of technicians that do not want to learn it or inversely are absolutely terrified of this technology is immense. We're going to see a big turnaround in the trade, which is going to worsen the problem we've already got with acquiring mechanics. What do you think the aftermarket is going to look like? We're talking about, we've talked about right to repair. We've talked about technicians needing to learn a whole new ball game. The, what do you think the aftermarket is going to look like? Are, are we going to have batteries that aren't, aren't original equipment? Um, are the OEMs going to get less hands-on and let people start fixing some of this stuff? Because right now it's, I think, 10% average of the market is EV, but that's gone up from 0.0001 a couple years ago. So it's rapidly increasing. What are we going to see in the aftermarket? Well, the aftermarket's got to catch up. Uh, I think we've got to get a lot of aftermarket 
um, interest in electric vehicles. So uh, we saw a ton of, you know, aftermarket interest in, and I mean like the performance aftermarket interest in the vehicles, made them sexy, all that kind of stuff. For the longest time, they've been Prius. Nobody really wants to put money into them. They're kind of boring. Um, so aftermarket companies haven't pursued them. And it, like you just said, they've been such a small part of the market for so very long that they were largely ignored. Now, all of a sudden, we're starting to flood the market with them. Even from a year or two ago, the, the amount that you see on the road in your daily commute, it's no longer one of those oddities. Oh, they're driving one as well. It's just, you know, it's another guy in an electric car. Um, the aftermarket has been caught largely with their pants down, not ready for this rush of technology. And they have to catch up. We have to get people um, shouting from the rooftops for a right to repair, for aftermarket support. And in, in best case scenario, yeah, let's get aftermarket battery packs from decent manufacturers or even OE manufacturers that rebrand them and sell them under a discount name. Uh, think of General Motors versus AC Delco. You're getting a factory part at a aftermarket price. Uh, we need to start seeing that in the EV space and, and quickly. We need the training. We need the parts. So we need some regulatory bodies in here to push um, probably OEM development, or sorry, not OEM, but aftermarket development into some sectors like battery recycling and things like that. Yeah. What What would you do in, in light of what you do at the college for listeners, if they've got they themselves or kids or someone they know is interested in the automotive industry, it is moving forward an incredibly diff different game than what we've been used to. What would you recommend? Is this something that young people, especially, or people looking for a career change, do you see a lot of opportunity here? Is there something new and exciting? Is there certain kinds of people that would respond in this environment maybe better than others? What would you tell them if you've got these kids that you want to teach? Yeah, so this is this is an exciting new space. Uh, we, we are going to see a real um, need for technicians that are willing to do this. Uh, this is not old, clunky, grease monkey stuff. 90% of, of electric vehicles are going to be l using your head and figuring out how they work. We need really intelligent people in order to do that. You can't see electricity. Uh, you can't smell electricity. You can't feel electricity. And if any of these things are, are seen, felt, or smelt, you've done something horribly wrong and you probably don't get another opportunity. Um, so we need people that have their wits about them. We, we need, you know, the best of the best in order to get into these vehicles, figure out their electrical systems and repair them at an effective cost for the customer while being fairly compensated themselves. This is where we need to see some um, curriculum changes from the ministries. Uh, in Ontario, our curriculum is over 10 years old. We are talking for, you know, uh, in the Motive Power program, we're talking for two days about hybrids, and that's all the exposure my students get. Uh, we're revamping that program in order to add EV before the government says you must add it. But um, for my students coming in, they're going, well, when do we learn about EV? And I have to look at them and go, uh, we don't. We don't. But here's this distributor that hasn't been used since the mid-90s, right? So we, we're, we're in this 
weird space as far as training goes. The manufacturer training, so our manufacturer programs are going to have a much better exposure to it because it's cutting edge and the manufacturer says, hey, you got to teach them about this. Our general apprenticeship streams are lacking because of a lack of government movement, let's call it. Um, Mr. Ford came in, he changed uh, from the Ontario College of Trades over to the new Ministry of uh, Training and Advancement, whatever it might be, uh, funny walks. And we haven't seen the support that we need in order to regulate and update the curriculum that the students need to be successful in a very new and very changing automotive climate. So for all the, the banner waving, and I, I can nail every level of government on this, but I mean, we're talking Ontario, which is the heart of car development and creation in Canada. We need more than just big checks written to manufacturers to lure them here. We need more muscle put into training the future of these cars, if it's indeed the future, and we're being told it is. So I think they need, you're right, they have to put their money where their mouth is. We need these people trained properly. You guys are set up to do it. I really hope they, uh, I hope there's some movement from this because, well, obviously there has to be. We're going to be stuck with cars that we're going to be complaining about because we can't fix them. Anyway, that's it for this edition of The Driving Podcast. A huge thanks to my guest, Chris Muir. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to check out previous episodes of The Driving Podcast. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll see you next time.